welcome to the Lifting Lindsay podcast. So today I have Ben Yanis, also known as Ben Yanes, but really his name is Ben Yanis. I just found this out. So <laughs> I have him on the show today. I'm really, really excited to have you on, Ben. And I'm just going to let you kind of introduce yourself to my audience. Great. Yeah. Thanks Sell for Sell yourself. Me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Ben Giannis, spelled like Yanes, but, you know, whichever you guys prefer and girls prefer. Um, yeah, but no, I appreciate you having me on. I've been, it's, it's, it's been weird because we're kind of like Instagram pals. Like I, I, I feel like I have this experience a lot where I talk to Instagram pals for months on end. And then, you know, finally we do a podcast or we have a call and it's like, you know, a great conversation most of the time. Um, but most yeah. Of the time. <laughs> most of the time. Yeah, most like 90, 95. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm currently a, a personal trainer uh, based out of New York, New Jersey. Um, I have been in the industry not too long. I'm only uh, 23 years old. I've been technically training people since I was, um, you know, 17, 18. Um, so just about graduating high school. Um, I went to college for exercise science, that whole story. And I got into lifting because, uh, I played sports my whole life. And, uh, you know, basically the story of a failed, uh, failed successful collegiate athlete, uh, you know, turned into lifter. <laughs> turned what into, what like, did you play? Uh, so I played football and baseball most of my life. Uh, but I transitioned to playing the cross and football, um, later on in high school. Uh, so I wanted to play lacrosse in college, tried out for the fall ball team. It went well, but, uh, you know, didn't, didn't love the, uh, the sport atmosphere we'll say. Um, so I transitioned into just kind of training athletes at my school, uh, from that point forward. Um, and then, yeah, so that's kind of when I really started diving into all this biomechanics stuff. And, you know, whenever people ask me what I do, I have a really tough time giving a straight answer. I usually just say personal trainer for people who aren't in this, you know, fitness space. Um, but what I do now mainly is uh, education. So I work with personal trainers and strength coaches uh, in the education of human movement. Some know that as biomechanics, some know that as anatomy, uh, whatever you want to call it. But, you know, that's mainly what I'm doing now is uh, kind of putting together a lot of different uh, kinds of content, you know, videos, longer form uh, on an education platform, shorter form uh, via Instagram. Uh, and hopefully we got some cool stuff coming up in the way of, of courses and live seminars at some point soon in probably 2023 or so. Um, so, you know, over time, I've, I've shifted more from personal training in person to more education online. Uh, and that's kind of what I foresee my future being mostly made out of is just educating personal trainers, again, in the way of biomechanics, anatomy, uh, and all that sort of lifting stuff. That's awesome. So you said that you went to school for exercise science. So I see, yeah. a, lot of, I see a lot of trainers who have that background. Um, yeah. That's kind of a hard one, too, because that sounds really cool, but I feel like depending on where you went and what you learned and where you stopped, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like that a lot of it's like when people are like, oh, I got a NASA certification and I'm not diminishing that. That's that's really cool. It's kind of getting your your pinky toe a little bit wet. Right. It's yeah, just yeah. like a halfway in. Yeah. 
Yeah. So what has been your experience with having that background exercise science compared to now where you're at as far as biomechanics? Did Has your continued education changed a lot of what you feel like you your opinions were what you learned there? Oh, absolutely. Um, so technically my degree was called health sciences. Um, but basically within that degree, I went to Gettysburg college. I don't know if you're, you've heard of, everyone's heard of like the battle of Gettysburg, but no one really yeah, tends to know. Big that, deal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> somewhat, but the, uh, you know, the, the, the college itself is really small. So there's only 2,400 people. Uh, and there's no graduate school, obviously. Um, and, you know, so basically within the health science field, that's like the broad categorization of it. You can go different routes. So you can choose to, well, as any health science major, you have to take the basic sciences, you know, so biology, chemistry, physics, those kinds of things. Um, and, you know, you can, if you want to take an anatomy course, you can, if you want to take a nutrition course, an orthopedic anatomy course, a neuromuscular physiology course, all of which I did. Uh, but many people who are in that major don't actually have to, to do those things. So, you know, at, at my school, you could basically just like be a health science major and then call your major whatever you wanted to call it, um, which didn't really mean taking many specific classes. So I would say that the two most specific classes that I took in this regard were uh, anatomy and physiology uh, and then orthopedic anatomy and neuromuscular physiology. So neuromuscular physiology and uh, AMP is what we called it. Uh, we're both very, very like cellular focused. So it was like getting into the minutia of, you know, things like mitochondria and all the basics that you learn in like introductory biology and basically just all that stuff more in depth, which I couldn't have hated more. Like I really, really, I, I, I'm not a fan of like learning about things that I can't see, you know, obviously you can't technically see what a muscle looks like or a bone looks like unless there's a big problem. Um, but, you know, for the most part, those classes were very overgeneralized in the sense of the, you know, the anatomy specific stuff. The only course that really dove deeper into the stuff that I kind of am teaching now was the orthopedic anatomy course, which could have done, could have gone in multiple different directions in terms of like just retrospectively how I'm thinking about it. But what I looked at it as was basically a class to just learn and memorize attachment sites uh, and names of muscles and fiber directions. And there was nothing really beyond the sort of textbook learning of this is a muscle, this is where it is, this is what it does based on, you know, the 2D representation you see in any book. Um, and that honestly, like, was super helpful, just like as a, as a starting point and as a point to really get me more interested in this kind of stuff. But nowhere along the way did I learn any of the applied anatomy, like, actual motion. Uh, nowhere did I learn how physics applied to the body, even though I took two physics courses uh, in college with, you know, labs every single week. Um, so I think it's, you know, typical of what any sort of personal trainer that really has experience in this stuff would think, which is basically like you learn a lot about a textbook and you memorize things to do well on tests. And that's about it. Uh, and everything that kind of has come, you know, after that point and continuing education has totally shifted my perspective from the point of view of just making everything actually applicable to a live human being. Uh, and a lot of that stuff, and I can get into different courses if you, if you want, 
uh, has come from different perspectives, but ultimately all of the stuff you learn in continuing ed, or at least a lot of it is like, Hey, how does this apply to the person in front of you? And that's really where all the value has been to me. Um, but I don't regret taking any of those courses in college because I do think at some point you have to sit down and like do a little bit of memorizing. And I think it's very trendy now for people to kind of poo poo the, you know, the NASMs and I make jokes about it too. And it's funny, but Mm -hmm. It is a good starting point, like if you've never yeah, you know, done any of this stuff. So uh, that's kind of the rundown, um, which I'm sure you were kind of expecting in some way. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, well, yeah. I think I think a lot of those certifications, when people come to me and are like, well, what what should I do? Um, what what education should I do? Well, I, I believe in you never stop learning. Like yeah. it's not just about getting a certification. You just never stop learning. At least I believe that really good coaches always want to be learning, but yeah, you got to call the, if you want to work at a gym, you got to call them and ask what, what they require. A lot of gyms require certain certifications, so you can't even start working there without them. Yeah. But you, but you don't, you don't stop there, right? You just keep questioning, keep learning and growing. Yeah. And I think a really, something I heard somewhat recently is that, um, I forget, I forget who this kind of a quote was from, but I think that generally speaking, my observation of people who are most competent, not only in this field, but really in any field, you know, the, the more skilled someone appears, the less confident about what they're doing, not to the point where it's actually debilitating or it affects the application or their performance, but to the point of like, they never really feel secure in, in how much they know. Uh, and you see that in like the guys who are now you know, sort of in the later stages of now, they're mentoring people for a very long time. They're teaching courses. They're very, very well-renowned in the education realm. They're all like, yeah, I I present as confident, but the reason that people just continue to learn, uh, at least the people who do really well in this space, um, you know, they, they always feel like there's, there's something more there. And obviously there is, but to actually embody that idea of like valuing the things that you don't actually know more than the things that you think you do know is, is very rare to see, I think. And that's what you see across all, you know, uh, extremely competent people who are, who are teaching this stuff and who are applying it to themselves and other people. Um, so that totally resonates with me. Yeah, that's, that is so true. You see them questioning themselves what, and they even want to put to the test. Okay. This is what I think that I know. This is what I've taught for so long. And to actually question yourself and then have to say, Oh, I was wrong guys. A lot of people don't want to even want to enter that. Yeah. I think that only more recently have I actually felt like I've embodied that like up to this point, you know, the past couple of years, I've kind of said to myself and other people like, oh, you know, I like being wrong and, you know, it's it's cool to be wrong because then you learn more. But I feel like only until recently have I really been like excited about being wrong, because whenever someone points something out that like, you know, maybe I miss made a miscalculation with like setting up an exercise or maybe I, uh, you know, thought that this muscle did this thing when it really did this other thing, then it's like, oh my God, a new piece of information. Because so much of what you get into when you start to, you know, read things and and hear things over and over and over, it's like the same stuff. Okay. Like, I think I know this. And then when you hear that like novel piece of information, you know, I think in the earlier stages of my learning, I was like, I was made very insecure by that and very, uh, 
you know, I was very worried that I would be judged for my stupidity or, or feeling like an idiot. But then when you start to realize that like, eh, everyone's like kind of an idiot anyway, and we're all just like <laughs> figuring stuff out as we go, you know, that it's actually really exciting when, when that kind of thing is exposed. So I feel like only recently have I really, really uh, felt that in a true sense mm-hmm. of getting excited about when someone's like, no, that's not, that's not quite right. So uh, I think that's a really important conversation to have. And I think that this conversation doesn't happen very often because people are still really stuck in that like insecure stage. Uh, and you can kind of tell when people are a little bit full of it too. Like when they're kind of just like, you know, saying things like, uh, you know, it's, it's great to be a lifelong learner, but then, you know, you question their beliefs and they're very defensive and very emotional about yeah. it. Um, yeah. you know, I'm sure you see that a lot just in the DMS and in the stories. Oh, uh, man. Yeah. Well, I, I actually had somebody that I didn't agree with them on everything that they said, but that's okay. I feel like you can respect somebody and, and not agree with everything. And research came out and I just shared the research. I didn't even mention them. And I was just cut off so fast, like blocked, like people are like, I'm trying to send you his thing. And I'm like, I can't see I guess we're now no longer Instagram buddies. So yeah. <laughs> I don't I don't know. It's really it it is really funny. And also I think it also depends on like what part of your life you're in. Like some people are in a in a stage of their life where they really are they are secure with who they are on the inside. So they can be wrong about these kinds of things. Right. Yeah. But but a lot of times if we're using and, and, and I have a hard time sometimes when people are like, I'm science-based. I'm like, but what does that mean exactly? And I'd like to dive into that a little bit with you because I, I, I love sharing research. I love reading research. I'm not brilliant enough to understand all of it, but I'm like, okay, I can read through. I can get the gist of this. I can get the, an idea of, was this like a good solid study or was it kind of crap? Um, but sometimes we throw out, I'm science-based. See, look, there's this one study. It proves what I'm saying is right. And I'm kind of like, well, but that's just one study, right? So what does it mean to be science-based? Because that is, that's pretty popular to throw that out there now. And I feel like it can kind of be a mask, or you're just finding information that validates your opinion you already have? For sure. Yeah. It's a really good question. Uh, and it's something I, I think I still struggle to kind of conceptualize. So forgive me for the the rambling here, because uh, I've been thinking about it a lot recently, actually. Um, <clears throat> so when it comes to, I think most people look at science as like, this field that we use to determine objective truth, right? Like facts. Uh, so, you know, when you look at the color white, you're like, that's, that's white. And, you know, we understand certain properties of the color white that make it white. And that's been established, uh, you know, at at some point, who knows when the color white was established that we called it white, but everyone kind of agrees that like, you look at the color white and like, there it is. Um, and, and people look at that and they say, oh, well, that's science. Like, you know, that's, that's a fact that that wall is white behind me. And I think that when it comes to exercise, people interpret science in that same way. And they say, okay, well, here's this overhead triceps extension study. 
and you know, and people are talking about it as if uh, it's the end all be all of, of triceps training. They pull up the study and they're like, okay, well now this is like the only exercise you really need because the hypertrophy that was shown with this particular variation was greater than the other variation. And therefore the science says that like, you should do this one. And so like the color white, people look at the study and they say something along the lines uh, that is absolutist in, in a similar way of like, okay, well, this exercise is better for hypertrophy in, in absolute. And, you know, again, like you're saying, people will, will take that study, whether it supports their previous belief or whether they've just formed a new belief based on it because they saw it once and they read the abstract, whatever it is. Um, but I think that's really a, a misrepresentation ultimately of what, what science actually is. I think if you're truly a scientific person and you only really see this in the Instagram world, I feel like, because I listen to a ton of podcasts where like actual like scientists are, are speaking and having conversations and having good dialect. And there's so much uncertainty in all of the statements that they make. Like, you know, there's a caveat with every sort of uh, context that they bring up. There's, you know, nuance to every statement. There's the, if then there's the, you know, so there's, there's so many things that like actual scientists will talk about just in, in the way that they speak that lets you know, like, Hey, this is what we think that we understand, but there's this like whole vast world of things that we don't understand. And the, and the percentage difference between those two things in terms of, you know, what we currently know is like a percent of, of, you know, the whole picture, you know, out of, out of a hundred. And, and so when I hear actual scientists talk about that, I started to reframe my thinking of like, okay, well, this, these studies aren't saying like these things are facts, right? These studies aren't saying the overhead triceps extension is a better exercise because in a one-to-one it produced more hypertrophy. The study says, hey, this is information and what you do with the information is dependent upon the context of all the other things that we know about the specific topic. Right. It's not a conclusive thing that says these are now objective facts. So the goal of science really is to continually discover more things, to be able to articulate more things without actually saying like, OK, we've reached a point where we know this. Right. Obviously, certain things are more well established than others, uh, but that's largely just based on having more research dedicated to that particular you know, context or whatever you're talking about. It has nothing to do with the fact that, you know, uh, there's, there's this one study in this one area that said this one thing, and now, you know, everyone agrees. So I think the goal of science is to understand that you're never getting to an end goal. You're kind of just finding your way around the goal, but never quite getting there. Right. And so what science is meant to do is I think it's just meant to inform decision-making I don't think it's meant to uh, be used as like this, uh, this like weaponry that it seems like it's being used for now, which is to like uh, incite argument uh, over social media or to make definitive statements and absolute statements about, you know, what is better and, and why. So I think the ultimate goal of science is really just to kind of move us in the direction that we know we're never going to, you know, get to a destination moving in, if that makes sense. That does. I, th- I, there's so many things of, that you said that I really, really love that it's, it actually isn't an end result that we're going for, even when we're reading through science. It's basically just how can I make 
more wiser guided decisions. And it's actually 100% okay because I feel the same way as you when I listen to researchers and scientists who are really open-minded talk. They are all 100% perfectly fine sitting in uncertainty. They almost embrace it. And that to me shows actually a mature uh, mindset in, in so many ways. But a lot of times people don't want to they fear so much making the wrong decision that they have to have one study that sh- that shows that this is quote unquote right. And they live in this world of extremes. There's either right or there's wrong. And this is another thing I want to talk to you about because um, I try, I'm not always good at this, but heaven knows, but I try to be uh, mindful of the words that I choose, especially when I'm posting on Instagram. So I will use terms like this is more optimal and I'll have people come at me saying it's not a bad exercise. I'm like, okay, where did I say it was a bad exercise? I Mm -hmm. I didn't. I did that. Like I was very like thought out about that one. Like I did not want to say this is bad. This is right. This is wrong because everything just depends. And I loved that you use the white as an example, because my daughter just barely started an art class and (laughs) the art instructor, I loved that he did this. The art instructor actually held up this, well, it was on the TV, but he, he held up this, this white block. And he said, what color is this? And everybody was like white. And then he held up another color. He held up white next to it. And all of a sudden it was like, oh, that was gray. What? Mm. We've been calling gray white this whole time. He's like, you need to be so careful. And then me and my husband just grabbed that and like made all these different connections about life and truth and science. And we, we started going down a rabbit hole with that one. We loved it. But it is so true. Context matters. So let's talk about this a little bit. There, um, there's a lot of arguments happening that optimization doesn't matter doesn't matter. You don't need to optimize. You can just choose something that's good. And what are your thoughts about that? And I guess I'll give you greater context. So for example, um, well, I mean, just with exercise selection, because I'm very, very picky about the, my exercise selection. I, I, I don't know if I've met anybody until you came along into my life, Ben, that was probably like, (laughs) like I am with this. Or, yeah. or, I mean, there's like Cassim Hansen and, and Cody and Adam like Miller and stuff. They're pretty hardcore in their choices. But yeah. um, anyway, so a lot of times I'll say this is optimal and people are like, you don't have to optimize. You can just, if it's good, it's good. That's good enough. Okay, go. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> a lot of thoughts on this one. Um, so where I kind of like to start with these kinds of conversations is with like this, I like to take, especially as of late, the steel man approach, right? So if I'm going to like bash stretching, you know, passive stretching, I'm going to read, you know, research two hours a day on stretching. So I've kind of dug into like what the rationale of these people who are the, you know, we call them the anti-optimal crowd uh, is. And what seems to be the case is like, they're not, they're not necessarily wrong. So what I mean is like, 
you know, you look at the the most famous bodybuilders of all time, right? People commonly use the example of like the Ronnie Coleman's and the Jay Cutler's and whoever else and the Kai Greens. And they're all these big jack dudes who are the biggest, most jack dudes to ever live and walk the planet. And, you know, they probably didn't even know like that their lat had like three major divisions. They probably didn't know like where their pec stretched. They probably didn't know that like maybe they didn't know that they had two biceps. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Like there's no telling what they did and what they didn't know. But what we do know is that they didn't really, they just trained really hard and they got really big and they took a lot of drugs and they ate a lot of food. Uh, And a lot of people have done that and they've done that successfully. And so what people look at uh, in terms of this whole optimal conversation are the beginning and end points. So they look at point A and they look at point B and they say, okay, well, Ronnie didn't know this stuff. You know, he didn't know that the thoracic division pulls your arm here and the iliac pulls your arm here, but like he got big anyway. So like, you know, that's proof of concept that it doesn't matter. And it's like, well, you, you, you can't really be too sure about that. Right. So what I mean is like, let's say that, um, you know, Ronnie got from point A to, to, to point B, which clearly, you know, he did like greatest bodybuilder of all time. Um, but what you don't know is how fast he got there. And you also don't know with what rate he got there compared to, uh, the rate at which he could have gotten there. Okay. So what I mean is like, what we see is Ronnie from point A to point B, but we don't see all of the other things that kind of come between those two points, right? So we don't see the rate of progress. We don't see uh, you know, the, the rate of, uh, you know, specific tissue development relative to other tissues. So we don't see like, you know, the discrepancies in maybe what one portion of his lat looked like relative to the other. What we see is the total outcome of all this work that he's done over his entire life. And so what we make an assumption about is, uh, you know, if, if a to B, then I can conclude that all of the work that he did in that in that time frame was exactly what he needed to do to get to point B. Um, but no one else considers other factors in the way of like, okay, well, you know, and again, nothing against Ronnie personally, he's like the living legend and he's inspiring now is, well, look at all the, you know, the orthopedic consequences that he's had to deal with. Look at all of the, um, you know, other bodybuilders who, who tried that same approach and who didn't quite make it. Look at all of the people who have tried that same approach that are of a general population, uh, uh, you know, uh, perspective or from a general population perspective that like, you know, feel like they can't get any bigger whatsoever. Maybe they're, you know, eating as, as much as they possibly can and they're trying to train hard, but they're just not genetically in a position where they can get away with that and not feel like total garbage uh, or, or not just get burnt out very, very quickly. So, you know, when you use the example of the Ronnie's and the Jays, what you fail to sort of uh, recognize amongst all of the other variables is just what other people, you know, tried that same thing and didn't end up in that place. And there's a hell of a lot more people that are in that position than there are uh, you know, in the position of, of the Ronnie's and, and, and the Jays. Uh, and so, you know, even if you took an example, like someone who wasn't, you know, genetically gifted, wasn't on drugs, all those things, you know, just took a, just your average Joe and you just told them to train hard and you just told them to like eat a lot of food. 
and, you know, cover their sleep and nutrition. Uh, you know, if you took that person and you optimized all of those lifestyle variables, right? Uh, the sleep, the daily movement, the life stress, whatever else. Uh, and you just told them to train hard. Maybe they would get from point A to point B and, and whatever their version of, you know, point A to point B is. Um, but maybe they wouldn't. But it doesn't really make too much sense to me to have a tool available that can aid you in the process of getting from point A to point B, whether it be having fewer orthopedic maladaptive outcomes or whether it just be you progressing at a rate that's faster than you would have otherwise. It doesn't make sense to me that you wouldn't take advantage of, of the tool that exists. And so the argument of, well, you don't need these things, therefore you shouldn't use them, doesn't make too much sense to me if the cost of using the tool is as low as the cost in, in this example, and the potential outcome and the benefit of using that tool is as big as, you know, obviously it's not like something we can, we can measure uh, from a quantitative perspective, but there are so many examples um, that, are, that are more like the latter example of, you know, the person who makes zero progress and doesn't get anywhere because they don't have all those tools that Ronnie had, or they don't have all those tools that Jay had that just make it like, to me, such a compelling argument to try to optimize every variable that exists. Because if you're not trying to put yourself in that position, then it's highly, highly likely that all of the things that just work for, you know, again, the more genetically gifted people uh, probably work for you too. And so this is where, you know, you kind of figure out why people fall on particular sides of the coin. Not pretty much every single person that I've talked to that's like of this anti-optimal crowd are the people that succeeded just training hard, just keeping it simple, right? Just doing barbell rows, just barbell benching. Uh, you know, these are the people that didn't get hurt. These are the people that didn't have to like think too much about programming. They just kind of walk into the gym and they do whatever and they get the results. And then all of the other people who tried to do that same thing and are like, wait, what am I doing wrong? Like what's wrong with me are the people who start to like dive into the deeper topics and the people that are starting to like, you know, pay more attention to all these more nuanced conversations around movement because they need those tools to get to, you know, from point A to, to point B. But what getting from point A to point B doesn't represent and the people that it worked for is it doesn't represent um, like efficacy of the process that they used in terms of, you know, picture two worlds, one in which, you know, someone just works hard, trains hard, gets bigger. And another in which they had all those things, but they also had the additional tools of like training a little bit smarter for, you know, the, the same amount of time. You have no idea what the rate of progress relative to those two situations would be. Maybe you would have gotten to your goal like a year sooner, longer term, you know, had you actually paid attention to the more nuanced things. Maybe you would have gotten to a place and arrived at that place feeling much better orthopedically. Um, so I just think that like so much of these conversations come down to the individual bias of, of what the experience of the person has been. And all of the people who have just gotten there without having to think about this stuff are always just going to think that. And all of the people that, you know, were not genetically gifted, were not in the position for it to just kind of happen for them are always going to be more biased toward believing that those tools are like the end all be all. And to be honest, I think the answer is probably somewhere in between like it is with everything else to where it's like, yeah, you know, again, could you get to that end point that you wanted to eventually if you just train hard, eat a lot, you know, take drugs? Sure. Um, but, you know, could you get to that point um, 
again, a little bit faster, a little bit more efficiently with, with lower costs to your stress and your overall well-being, you know, probably also. Yeah. Um, so I think it just comes down to like, again, what the, what the sort of history of the person, uh, is and changing that bias is really, really difficult. So for me personally, like I was never the person just to go into the weight room and do barbell curls and not have my elbow hurt. Right. So I figured out a way to do curls where my elbows didn't hurt. Um, but you know, someone like Ronnie maybe just did curls with the barbell and they felt great or maybe they hurt and he was like, I don't care. Mm-hmm. You know, He's like, I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, <laughs> yep. So there are definitely those people who are like, Oh, this yeah. is just supposed to hurt. And I'm like, um, no, no, yeah, it's not right. like right. you should not yeah. be walking away with massive elbow pain after tricep day. Like, nope, yeah. that's not it. That's not just what you sacrifice for the gains kind of thing. Yeah. So, you I know, to you me, really it's, nailed that. Well, I mean, I, my thoughts again are still, like I said, it was going to be kind of all over the place, but to me, it's kind of just like, um, I think that the answer is somewhere in the middle, but to me, I think what people end up um, doing in this, in this circumstances, they end up conflating, uh, you know, more optimization, if you want to call it that more thought about what goes into training, they conflate that with, um, overcomplication. They conflate that with lack of training intensity, and they conflate that with, uh, thinking too much and doing too little. Um, but the reality of that is that that's just their perception of what they view optimal as, which likely says a lot more about what biases they have relative to what the actual reality of these things are and how you choose to interpret what optimal is, I think is entirely based around what your experience has been. And you can't really change what people's experiences have been. So the mindset that I think that I've taken you know, in, in this regard more over time is just, I'm not going to really, really going to look to change anyone in terms of their belief about whether this is important or not. I'm just going to try to speak to the people that already value it in some way and, you know, value it enough to learn from me in a way that is, uh, you know, worth it to them, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does. I, that just resonates with me because, um, I, like I have seven sisters, Ben, I don't know. I mean, wow, I don't know why crap. you would know that, but I have, I told you I'm from Utah. So I have seven <laughs> sisters and, um, and I'm actually the only one from my parents. So I'm the old from my mom and dad. Like it was two is the whole Brady bunch thing. So okay. I'm the only one from there, from them. I'm the only genetic one from them. But, um, it's interesting though, to watch my sisters who are huge runners have this, they get into a calorie deficit, they run and they have these incredible shoulders and Mm -hmm. they have these like, like the butt that everybody dreams of the legs, they're just strong fit girls. And then here Lindsay comes along and I am just like this tall, lanky basketball player. I'm like running (laughs) and I'm like, how come I don't look like them? Like I'm running, I'm doing the same exact things that they are. And so I think you nailed it in that there were so many things that I had to optimize. And even if you just kind of look at like the ratios of my limbs, like the, um, the long femurs, the really short torso, like there are so many things that I'm like, man, I do a squat and it doesn't look like the books. I do a deadlift. Why can't I do it like them? Like 
And so that sent me down the path of optimization because I wasn't seeing the gains that everybody else was seeing so quickly. I couldn't lift just like them. And so, yeah, it did. And um, I'm actually really grateful, but I will say this much. When you first get into it, I would agree that I feel like I got carried away in the over-optimization, right? You have to feel mind-muscle connection. If you're not feeling (laughs) every fiber of your glute firing, right? It's just, you can go down this rabbit hole. And so, but I think time coaching and studying and learning just kind of, it, it does, it swings from one side of the pendulum to another and you just kind of land somewhere in the middle where right. it's like, okay, what, and I like what you said, what, how do we define optimization? Um, and what needs to be optimized for this person versus somebody else? Yeah. Um, to that point, first of all, I'm also grateful because I love this stuff. And if I were genetically blessed, like who knows, you know, I probably would have never, uh, you know, dove into it in the first place. Um, but I was talking to my, uh, my, my training partner the other day about this specifically, the whole pendulum swing thing is I think it's totally natural because, you know, when you discover something new or uh, when you dive into a topic that you haven't you know, before, and you find it super interesting, you go like way deep, like at least a lot of people that I know in this, in this space that go way too deep, like way too far. And, you know, eventually again, the, the, the pendulum swings back. But I think that that initial stage of like falling in love with whatever it is, like falling in love, you know, with a, a specific uh, muscle group and like spending four hours reading research about that muscle group. I think that that needs to happen for for society in general like not just what we're talking about to actually advance like people need to get way overly invested to only be able to come back and realize that it's not as important as they thought like you have to dive a certain level deep to to be able to see the other side of things whereas like when you when you go like the superficial level and you and you kind of regurgitate what other people say and you know some of that's obviously necessary no one can be an expert at everything um but when you when you go this like superficial level deep and you and you repeat things that you hear from other people to your to your colleagues who are maybe asking for information, um, there's a certain like uh, uh, like dishonesty about that to me, wherein I feel like it unless you've unless you've dove deep enough into a particular topic, you've fallen in love with it, you've kind of t- have the ability to take a step back from it to realize its importance. What you're saying doesn't really have like weight from the perspective of you don't actually really know where it fits in. So if you're training a gen pop client and you know, you're, you're overly worried about like this perfect cable being perfectly in line with the plane of motion of the elbow, which is directly, you know, perpendicular to the, you know, position of the, the plane of the shoulder, like you're going to, you're going to make your client overthink. They're going to feel like I'm not doing it right. They're going to feel worse about what they're doing. They're probably not really going to get a a ton out of that exercise. So it's being able to go way too far and then like come back out of it to realize like, okay, like I probably went too far with that thing. But now I I, I can recognize where it fits in with the rest of other things in terms of that hierarchy of, of importance. And I think that's kind of where I've come to at least now. I probably still overvalue certain things just because, again, of my bias, my experience. Um, but at least I'm kind of aware of that now. And in certain circumstances where I do have that urge to like make the small correction, 
um, I kind of am able to take a step back now and be like, okay, you know, this is good. This is like 90% of the way there. This is probably good enough. And this person is like, they feel good. They like what they're doing. They're working hard. They're doing exactly what I need them to do. So I think that perspective is, is super important. Yep, exactly. So I have a Facebook group where, um, women will upload form videos on there. And it is, it is interesting. Like there's, there's a certain, I, watching somebody and how they move, you can kind of get a general idea of how trained they are. Right. Yeah. And just kind of spot these, like how neurologically efficient are they? And so it's interesting because with some of them, I will be like that. Awesome. That was great. Now just load it. Now just Mm -hmm. work hard. Now get your mind into it because you're trying to feel every single muscle fiber. Just let your body do what it does, right? It's going to be far better at it than you are. And then it's interesting because there are other people, a girl, a woman posted today and I was just like, it was like a 15 minute breakdown of her, of lining things up because (laughs) you can spot different levels, right? You can spot like this one. What does this client need right now? She needs confidence. She just needs confidence. She doesn't need to worry about what angle we're at. Um, and she just needs to work hard. Whereas this other woman comes to me and it's like, no, we are going to worry a little bit more about working in the scapular plane. Um, you not bringing in so much of your upper traps as you're going through this movement. Like that is why, cause specifically she came saying, why are my, like she, like my upper traps are building a little too much. I'm like, well, that can be like a compilation of a lot of things, not just your lateral raises, but let's dive into it. Right. So you just kind of, I think through time and experience working with somebody, you just see like what's needed in the moment is optimization needed in the moment or is a cheerleader needed in the moment? Just like load it, work hard. Right. Yeah. And I think that's a total, uh, you know, coaches, coaches, I ask kind of a thing. And it speaks to, you know, in this particular case, like your experience working with enough people to be able to recognize those things. But you can only recognize those things if you've gone down the route of like completely messing it up. And then you come out the other side and you're like, oh, why? I like really went down the wrong rabbit hole there. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that's where I think the whole falling in love with it thing is is super important. And, you know, at times, is it like, can it be detrimental? Yeah. Can you detrain people and make them weaker by focusing too much on those minutia? Yeah. Um, but I think as long as you kind of come out the other end, it's, it's, you know, it's no biggie and you'll probably end up, you know, better coach for it. Yeah, I would agree with that one. Okay, let's dive into a few other just like quick questions for you. Um, I hear you love stretching. You do yeah. it before and after every workout. Before and after every <laughs> workout, us. before and after I eat, before and after I sleep. Yeah. <laughs> every walk. So before I get the chance. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, so I can talk to us about stretching. Yeah, Because okay. you love that. I mean, he oh, doesn't man. love it, guys. I hope you caught the sarcasm here. But this yeah. is a question that people ask a lot is, um, and, and it's, it's usually based off of this muscle feels quote unquote tight, right? Or yeah. I want to increase my range of motion. So stretching is the answer because somebody just, you know, sold me on it and then wanted $20 for their book about it, right? Or something like that. Yeah. So let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So I think this... Um... I think this connects closely with the idea of just traditional knowledge. And I think 
I think people, uh, traditional knowledge, you know, things that are commonly accepted, in other words, are things that should be questioned the most. So, you know, when I was playing sports and anyone who really grew up playing sports, they were told by their coaches, you need to stretch uh, because, uh, you know, we, we don't want to get hurt out here uh, and, and we need to recover and we want to, we want to uh, alleviate some of the soreness and the pain that you feel and, and the tightness that you feel. And, you know, we were taught that growing up and we believed it forever and we never really second guessed it. We never really asked why. And so, you know, before we realize it, we're, we're in our 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and we're stretching every day and we don't even really know why. Um, and I think so the first thing is that I always ask myself in these cases, like, well, OK, why? Again, just to relate to the I forget what in particular I was talking about earlier with the whole steel man thing is like, OK, well, what is stretching good for? Like what? what what are the reasons that people stretch um and and what are the what are the things that we think that we know about stretching based on the research um uh, in relation to to those things so the first reason like you mentioned that people stretch is because they feel tight and in association with that they associate tightness with um either weakness a lot of times people say like tight and weak um but they also will say things like oh, i'm tight and i'm like stiff you know, so tight and weak, tight and stiff, um, you know, those two things can can kind of come together, but they can also be like separate thoughts from from separate people. And when people say that they're they're tight and stiff, they often talk about range of motion. Uh, so range of motion at my uh, hip. Can I touch my toes? Uh, range of motion in my shoulder. Can I reach my hand over my head? Those kinds of things. Uh, and so I kind of just take each of those things apart individually. And I'll just I can just use one example because it kind of applies to you know, everything across the board in relation to this conversation, which is like, okay, you feel tight. That's a feeling. Feelings are cool. Um, but what does that really mean? Like, what does tightness really mean? And why does tightness occur? Uh, I think tightness can occur for so many more reasons than people actually realize. I think people just associate tightness with like a muscular sensation. Um, but anyone who's ever been stressed for any period of time probably feels like their neck is tight. Right. So tightness can be emotional. Tightness can be physical. Tightness, tightness can relate to muscle tissue. Tightness can relate to ligamentous tissue, to, to tendinous tissue, like any, any kind of connective tissue. You could have a major, uh, you know, osteoarthritic situation in your knee that's not preventing or not, not allowing your knee to bend fully. Uh, you could have, uh, let's say, uh, a, a more specific example with the, with the knee would be like uh, a lot of people have gotten at least uh, people who I've worked with who have had knee pain, they have like swelling in like weird places. And so it's like, okay, well, swelling can create tightness. And why does swelling happen? So, you know, there's all these different rabbit holes of like all these different reasons why you might feel tight, but no one really asked the question of like, why, why is that the problem in the first place? Um, and so when we really dive into that, it's like, okay, I prefer just to kind of address the root cause, whatever I sort of theorize the root cause is. 90% of the time with my clients, it's just you're taking like 2000 steps a day and you sit for 10 hours a day. Um, so the solution there is just to make sure, you know, maybe buy a standing desk or maybe like buy a dog and walk the dog, right? Um, the, the, the solution for me a lot of the time is not to try to address the symptom, right? And, and use the Band-Aid, it's to try to address the cause. But then in other circumstances, if we want to address the other side of this conversation, it's like, okay, well, again, what is there, what are the research 
uh, the current body of research say on stretching. Uh, and, and pretty much across the board, what we find is like, okay, in terms of stretching's effect on range of motion, stretching improves range of motion. Wow. Who would have thought? Uh, crazy, right? That stretching makes you better at stretching. Um, so that's what it does do is it makes you more flexible in the, in the positions that you train. Um, what it doesn't do is we have no evidence that it, it's preventative of injury. And in some cases, especially running populations, we see that rates of injury are higher. Uh, with with uh, groups of people that static stretch. Um, it doesn't reduce any sort of, at least from a physiological perspective, any uh, uh, prevalence of, of delayed onset muscle soreness. So it doesn't actually uh, improve recovery rates. Uh, and it certainly doesn't uh, improve range of motion any more than strength training does. Those are the things that we currently understand based on, you know, if I had to give a summary of the research, that's what the research currently says. So even if we tossed all of those objective arguments aside, and even if we tossed all of the why asking questions that we just asked, then I would come to like, okay, well, you know, if, if we're stretching and again, we're asking ourselves like, why do we feel tight? Um, I, I think about the current status of the person. So not only could we feel tight, maybe just because we don't move enough in general, but what if we have current circumstances uh, you know, just existing in bone or soft tissue that have the potential to be made worse by trying to shove yourself into certain positions. So if you're someone who especially is working with an older, uh, you know, population, um, you know, those, those are people who very, very likely have some sort of osteophyte or osteoarthritic circumstance. It could be very minor, but it could still exist. Uh, they could also have some sort of, uh, you know, previously existing issue with uh, soft tissue, with connective tissue, right? With ligament, uh, with tendon, all those kinds of things. And the collagen and the cartilage that are in all of our, our joints, and even potentially in some cases, the synovial fluid in, in our joints, may be existing in circumstances where we're kind of on the brink of bad things happening, generally speaking. Uh, but, but we don't really know it until until the bad things happen. So a good example of this is um, a, a friend told me a story recently. He's a powerlifting coach. He had this client who uh, just felt tight before she started squatting. She's like a she's a national record holder in the squat, by the way. Um, and for some reason, her hips were feeling particularly tight. So she did that old thing where like, you know, she she pulled, I think, her left leg up over her right leg. Uh, where her left, like the lateral side of her left heel was on her right leg. And she like sort of slowly started to push down on her leg to do whatever stretch, you know, she thought she was doing. Um, and lo and behold, she held the stretch for probably like three or four seconds and uh, completely ruptured her, uh, her LCL and her knee. Uh, and so that's like, that's a very extreme example. Uh, and she had it diagnosed. She went to a PT. She, she had it rehabbed, whatever. It's a very extreme example, but it's an example of like how little we actually are able to perceive about the current circumstances structurally of the body uh, and how little we actually have an ability to predict those kinds of things, um, uh, um, uh, how, how little an ability we have to actually predict those kinds of things. Uh, and so, you know, maybe she just, maybe it was a tolerance thing, like maybe she pushed too hard. Uh, or maybe it was something that was bound to happen regardless of what she did. Like, I have no idea. Uh, but what I do know is that I don't know the current circumstance of any of my clients from that perspective. So I have no personal desire or business um, shoving them into particular positions that they can't actively control on their own. 
So if they're missing a particular range, what I don't say is we need to get that range. What I say is, well, that's kind of something that the body is telling me. I, I take that more as just like information. And under 99% of circumstances, I'm not going to do anything about it other than just work within whatever this person has the ability to control from a range perspective. Because if they have the ability to control the motion, then it's highly likely that their nervous system is saying, okay, this is okay right now um, under the current circumstances. So I'm more just afraid of like putting myself into a circumstance where I could actually injure someone by stretching them uh, or, or that a client of mine could injure themselves by me telling them to stretch as opposed to the other things. Um, but I think all of those other things still are factors that need to be considered alongside all of, again, the orthopedic considerations, the joint integrity uh, considerations that I kind of went over there. So those are my thoughts. A lot of times I feel like coaches, as a coach or a trainer or whatever, you um, you want to feel like you know everything. You want to feel like you can give an answer to every single problem and question. And a lot of times... Uh, I have seen coaches afraid to just say, do you know what? I don't know. That's out of my scope. Like yep. that's something that you need to go to somebody else for. Um, I see that a lot with nutrition and hormones. I mean, I, I actually don't see that a lot. There's been two, I have worked with hundreds of women. There have only been two where I said, where I felt that with proper nutrition and training, there was something else going on and that they should, and I sent him to a specialist because I'm not going to pretend to read their blood work and be like, Oh, you need this and this. No, there's specialists out there. Like yep. I'm going to be a specialist in what I do. I'm going to try to be the best that I can at writing programs, getting nutrition on board, but we've got to be cautious in trying to be, you know, the, the specialist in everything because you can sometimes do more harm than good. Yeah. Um, and, you know, with that particular example of like the girl, you know, pushing her, her leg down and her rupturing her, you know, a, a ligament in her knee. Um, I, I don't say that to like fear monger people. I don't say that to uh, create a sense of like, uh, you know, terror around stretching. I just use it as an illustration of like, we really have no idea what's actually going on with this. Uh, and 99% of the time, even if you're working with someone who has the capacity to uh, break down an MRI or an X-ray from like an objective perspective and say, here's the current status of the joint, you know, that person would probably also not be someone who's very equipped to like coach someone to move, right? So it's like, that's yeah. why we have these different like professions and these specialties so that we can, you know, kind of make the best of, of what we're good at. Uh, and I just think that what I'm good at has nothing to do with like trying to jam people's joints and to get them more range because 99% of the time, like the range that you have is the range that we're working with and the brain gives mm -hmm. you the range for, for a reason. So that's the stance that I take. Um, even again, if we're not even talking about any of the, what the research says or any of, you know, the other things that uh, we kind of talked about uh, briefly. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. So I wanted to ask you some questions about the squat. Um, mm -hmm. I had a client come and, and work with me the other day and, and she said, how come we don't, how come you're not having me do like more squats? Like how come I'm not doing squatting every single time I go in the gym or even the, the current training protocol that I had, um, she wasn't doing squats. What was funny is she was actually there 
to work on it because she wanted to, she felt like it was a limiter for her and her development. But I said, well, why do you feel like you need squats? What do you think you're going to get out of squats? And she goes, well, it's just everywhere on Instagram. They say squatting is quote unquote, so good. I'm like, oh, okay, let's break, let's break down so good. <laughs> like, yeah, what yeah. does that mean? And I'm sure you've seen that a lot. What are, what do you feel like they're trying to say by saying, oh, you know, you have to do this compound movement. It is quote unquote, so good for you. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think this relates very closely to the idea of traditional knowledge that we were kind of talking about with stretching in that for some reason, people, uh, whenever, you know, how, however long ago this, this may have happened, started to decide for everyone else what was a fundamental pattern that we need to do. And that like we need, we're supposed to do these things and so we should load them. And, uh, you know, just like the bench press is the king of all upper body exercises, the squat and the deadlift are the equivalent, you know, for the lower body. Um, and so again, that's, that's, that's traditional. That's what I think the traditional knowledge folks would say. Um, and even people, I think who have a good sense of like the more nuanced side of things, I think, I think we're all very biased, um, to, to look at a squat and to say that it's a, it's an amazing leg exercise or, or to look at a deadlift and say it's a, an amazing leg exercise and a spinal exercise. Um, but I think that that's totally dependent upon kind of like we were saying earlier, you know, who exactly you're working with, right? Because two people could do a squat and you could say, Hey, let's do some squats and it could look completely different. And because it would look completely different between two different people, based on whatever factors, limb length, range of motion, uh, joint structure, shoe wear, right? A million things, loading pattern. Um, you know, those two people might see two very, very different outcomes. So just like we were talking about with, you know, the whole Ronnie situation, the whole optimal situation, it's kind of like, well, you know, these squats really develop this one person's, this one girl's glutes. And this other girl, like she squatted every day forever. And she just like has massive quads now, like what's up with that? Um, so I think that that in it, in and of itself is evidence enough for me to be like, well, this is clearly not like, you know, a foundational quote unquote movement. If it can have these, uh, these ridiculously different outcomes for, for two different people. Um, and so I heard someone recently say, who I think is very competent in his own uh, sort of skill set, that, and he's he's worked with you know professional uh, sports teams. He has his whole uh, ed education business platform. He's an incredibly strong guy, and he was like, "Yeah, everyone needs to like learn how to squat because it's a foundational pattern, and everyone needs to learn how to hinge." And I'm not saying that either of those two things is wrong. But I'm also not saying that either of those two things is is correct in any real sense, um, because I think what ends up happening, uh, sort of like the whole optimal train hard thing, is people go down these rabbit holes and then they feel like they're incompetent or they feel like they're broken or they feel like they're not good enough because they did what everyone said that they should do, but they didn't see the result that they, they thought they would see. Um, and so, again, two different people squatting, two different outcomes, right? You could even, you could even say, um, I see this a lot with like RDLs, for example. 
of, uh, you know, to, you, you could say, okay, um, which is better stiff leg RDL or regular RDL. And I'm like, well, you could tell 10 people to do a regular RDL and you might see 10 different exercises. Like you might be looking at 10 different things. Uh, and so it just, it just can't be right. There just can't be anything that's foundational because what is foundational I think is inherently, inherently has to be specific or specified if that makes sense. Um, and this kind of sort of gut reaction that we all have to make judgments about names of exercises, not even exercise, but names of exercises is, uh, is ridiculous if you actually think about it. Um, and so it's this like pre-programmed response where a good example of this actually is like when you see someone doing a curl or when you tell someone to do a curl, you're like, do a biceps curl, right? But it's not like, it's not like only your biceps is doing the curl, right? You have other elbow flexors involved, but no one talks about poor brachialis. No one talks about poor brachioradialis, right? We're all just focused on biceps. And so we call it a biceps curl. And it's like, okay, we all know what we're saying, but what we're, what is actually happening or what is actually the case is different from what we're saying. Uh, and so I, I just don't think anything can be truly foundational or considered truly foundational or truly considered the king in any domain, if it's such an individualized um, thing, person, person to person. I just think that these reactions that we all have are, are so deeply embedded that we don't even, we don't even understand that they're reactions uh, and we don't understand that they're, they're emotional opinions. We, we look at them as like objective truth and objective reality. Um, so yeah, I don't even remember where that started, but it all starts with squats everyone's always I, I I can't tell you how many people have come to me and they're like well why aren't squats in my program when I when I write personalized programs I'm like well because you sent me because you told me you wanted x y and z and you told me you really wanted to build your glutes you also sent me a video of you squatting and you girl are not a glute dominant squatter. So we're not going to be using that. And you don't want your quads bigger. You literally just told me that. That yeah. is why we don't squat. Well, she doesn't squat. I squat. But um, I love it. Okay. Uh, two other questions. Let's talk about bands around the knees. Women, this is very popular. And this is a question I get a lot. Women are, how come you don't have me banned everything, including calf raises. I always laugh when I see that one because I'm like, that one is a stretch. Uh, <laughs> I've never heard that one. Holy crap. I've seen it. Yep. Yep. You just calf raises. Wow, calf that's intense. raises banned. I know. I'm like, wow, I don't know what's going on here, but this seems intriguing. Yeah. So um, let's talk about frog pumps and bands. Okay, yeah. Um so I, I won't repeat myself with the tradition thing, but the band is just another example of this like tradition that needs to die. Uh, and, and that's kind of like what my Instagram is a quest to do at this point is just to like kill tradition or to at least not kill it, but to make people be like, oh, wait, like, what is this thing? And like, yeah, why am I doing yeah. it again? Um, and sometimes, you know, it can get a bit polarizing and inflammatory, but, you know, that's what Instagram is for. Um, so with the band, yeah, so with the band around the knees, I think we can we can safely say that like anyone that's putting a band around their knees has the impression that the band is contributing in some way to like a glute max stimulus. Like that's what you're trying to do, especially if you're doing something like a frog pump or even a hip thrust, like anything along those lines, or even a squat. Uh, and I think this is really just a mechanical issue. I don't I don't really think it needs to be anything more or less than that. Which is that if we think about um, 
you know, the, the anatomy of, of the glute max, I kind of like to think about it as a chain that is acting around a tire. Um, and the chain is kind of, or kind of like the fibers of the glutes and the tire is kind of the pelvis. And when that chain wraps around that tire, I don't know if there's some video that is like etched into my mind of this, of the, someone pulling on a chain or a machine pulling on a chain and it's like going over the tire. And it's basically like you, what you can think about it as is like, you know, the, the pelvis or the tire in this case, those are both what we could consider anatomical pulleys and an anatomical pulley. You can think of just like as a regular pulley, like in a cable stack, all it's really doing is redirecting force, but it's redirecting a force in a way where it moves the line of force farther away from where the motion is actually occurring, which is at your hip. Um, and so when you have, uh, any sort of motion with glute max, you can think about that glute max functioning as that chain or as that cable around the pulley. Um, and the way that it's best going to do that is basically by pulling the leg down in a way that's very narrow or more narrow than most people would consider to the body. And if we look at the divisions that are kind of on the backside of the hip, like, you know, there's one that kind of runs along the hip bone, there's one that moves down to the tailbone and the bottom of the tailbone. Um, and so each of those can kind of move the leg slightly differently, but, uh, and I want anyone who's like either listening, I don't know if is this something that people watch too, like on video. Yeah. So for those of you listening, um, you know, the, the typical glute stretch that most people do, and they know this intuitively is like they pull their knee up and across their body. But for some reason, like when we load the glutes, we don't actually employ that same thing right so <clears throat> when you know you feel that kind of a stretch just picture like where the leg would want to be pulled in exact opposition to that that stretch that you're doing and most of you probably naturally can just pull your knee up and across and like feel you know what happens and so depending on you know which division you're talking about you'll either pull your leg slightly down and back directly back or slightly in and back but regardless of which one of those things it is, you're still going to pull the leg back. Okay. So even if you're talking about the one that pulls the leg outward and backward, there's still a backward, which would be in the, in a relative sense, still down, um, and, and never directly out. So to the band discussion, if we're thinking about like what the utility of the band is, well, the, the force that the band is creating is essentially like an adduction force, whether like your hips are, you know, and you're in a seated position, like you're doing that you know, uh, AD, abduction machine. Some people call that the good girl, bad girl machine. I don't know mm -hmm. really if yeah. that's correct to say at this point, but, <laughs> um, uh, what, what the band is essentially doing is it's pulling your legs together. And so with any sort of hip extension, you know, hip thrusting motion, even a squatting motion, what you're actually doing is you're directly moving against the motion that the glute max, any division really, would want to create because even the division that is going to pull the leg slightly out when it pulls the leg back is still narrower than you shoving your knees way, way, way out uh, against any band. So basically the way if, if none of that made sense to anyone listening, the way that you can think about it is like the action of you shoving your knees out is a direct opposite action to what your glutes would want to do. So when you're doing any kind of hip thrust, any kind of squat, any kind of frog pump, which especially the frog pump is like a very wide uh, position to begin with, what you're doing is you're putting your legs or you're directing your legs in a direction that's not exactly opposite, right? Because opposite would be like you pulling your leg in front of you. 
but that is not in the direction that the glutes would pull you. So what you get is a whole lot of co-contraction where all the muscles on the side of the hip are basically fighting against the muscles of the glutes that want to pull the leg down and back and kind of toward your body um, at the same time. And so what you feel is kind of like this very high sensation based thing uh, that you closely associate with tension, right? Um, but obviously tension is a very different conversation uh, in, in relation to, you know, tension not directly correlating or being causative of sensation or, or vice versa. So mm -hmm. I think the summary of that would basically be that whenever you're using a band, you know, you're, you're creating that strong outward force. But regardless of you creating that strong outward force, pretty much every division of your glute max is going to want to pull your leg in some way in relative to that very outward position. Um, so, you know, with any sort of hip thrust, with any sort of squat, with any sort of hip hinge, you're much better off from a glute perspective, just ditching the band. Um, because again, you don't really want to be fighting your own mechanics uh, when you're doing any exercise uh, whatsoever, let alone just, you know, a glute exercise. I think a lot of times people's argument is that there's like the, this abduction with the femur um, yeah. as the, there's this, but when we look at the relation, like how sm like tiny amounts there are, cause there's this arc, right. But there it's so minimal yeah. that there's no benefit. Yeah. And I also think if people like, if it, it would be much easier for people to visualize this, if they had like an anatomy app, obviously, but just picture kind of standing up or even like in a quadruped, like a, an all fours position, you pulling the leg up and out to the side, like a dog peeing on a fire hydrant or, you know, just you standing up like a ballerina and kind of pulling your leg out. Even if you were to say like, okay, this one division of the upper glute is the one that kind of pulls the leg out. You still have the other two butt cheeks, which are close to the, to the tailbone uh, that actually gets stretched when you pull your leg out. So even if you wanted to make the argument of like, okay, well, this one part of the glute max pulls the leg out. Okay. Fair game. Uh, but like, what about the, what about two thirds of the muscle that you're actually stretching when you do that? So it's like when you're creating the yeah. hip thrust motion, you are trying to shorten those two thirds. And at the same time, you're creating a motion that is directly stretching those two thirds. So you're stretching from one perspective, you're trying to contract from another and your body's like, Oh my God, like, what do I do? What do I do? Mm -hmm. And that's exemplified really, really well in the, uh, in the frog pump. And what you'll see most of the time with the frog pump is like people put their legs way out or you can see this on hip thrust where people go too wide. And when they actually, cause people know how to like squeeze their butts. It's like a pretty easy muscle to, to squeeze when people squeeze their way up on either of those exercises, what you often see is their whole femurs, and this is visually represented in their knees, you see their femurs get dragged inward. And, and so what people do is they squeeze up to the top. And if they get to the actual top of the motion, what happens is their knees actually get pulled in. If they're squeezing their glutes, not they don't stay out. Because if they keep their legs out, they actually can't get into a hip extended position. Um, yeah, they can't get there. Yeah. Uh, and so this is like why if any uh, you know of your listeners are – or have watched powerlifting, it's like why 99% of sumo deadlifters fail in like the last inch of the range of motion is because when they have their legs that wide and that abducted away from their body, you literally, from a structural perspective, can't extend your hips when, you're, when your uh, legs are that wide. And so that's why you usually see people who pull conventional, they, they tend to fail off of the ground uh, and why people who pull sumo 
fl bar flies off the ground because they have a ton of, of mechanical leverage in that position. Um, but then the last like half inch of the lockout, it's like they actually can extend their hips and their best bet is just to like lean backward and, and shove their, oh, their hip. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you often see that. And it's, it's yeah. like old sumo polish too, right? They like stick their head back up because they're basically just trying to fall backward. Um, but yeah, uh, awful, awful situation to be in. I've, I've been in there yeah. a few times. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, that was so much great information. I'm really glad that we had you on and that I asked you about, especially like this, the stretching, the squats, the, well, even science-based is so misunderstood. I feel like we talked about some really good stuff. So where can my listeners find you? Oh, and you just barely launched an ebook. I have guys, I, you guys ask me all the time, um, where to start learning more about like biomechanics because it's not just about muscle orientation it's like physics is huge in fact a lot of the questions that i answer as in regards to exercise i often think a physics class would would solve yeah. this one like right like nobody really like if you remember anything and that was actually where i thrived with science of like physics so anyways I'm like, oh yeah, that makes sense. A lot of it made sense having a background in physics, but um, you just barely launched an ebook, and I I read through a lot of it. I didn't get to the videos yet. I am kind of I'm excited to review those videos, um, but it was really good, guys. This is a good place to start. So where can they find you? Where can they find out more about your ebook? Well, first of all, thank you. Appreciate it. Um, yeah, Instagram is the place. Uh, Ben, Ben Yannis, you just type in my name uh, on Instagram. You'll find me a weird picture of me shouting. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, spelled Yanes. So if you, if you have to, you know, phonetically do that on your own spelled Yanes. And then if you uh, believe oh, in the English language, you know, and following yeah, the yeah. rules, it would be Yanes. So, <laughs> and then, yeah, just everything from an informational perspective through the old bio link, as they say. Uh, and that's, that's pretty much all there is to me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on today, Ben. It was awesome talking to you. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it.